Hello, I'm Anjali Pereira. And I'm Katie Romero Finger. Welcome to Boss vs. Book. Boss vs. Book is essentially a book club for business leaders in podcast form. Together, Katie and I are reading the books of the most successful leadership coaches of our time in a bid to figure out how they crushed it in business. We are very keen to learn because we have just launched our own business consultancy and we really hope the advice from these renowned authors will inspire and guide us along our business journey. So join us as we apply the lessons we've learned from these texts in real time to real business. The ultimate test of whether business books like this really do work. We are continuing with Simon Sinek's Start With Why, but we're changing it up a little bit because this time, instead of doing just one single chapter, we're gonna try and do the whole of part two because we felt that this book can be a little bit repetitive um, and these chapters obviously go together. So um, we're gonna give it a go, right, Katie? Yeah, try. And I think also that the ideas kind of can like, keep stringing along. So it's probably gonna be good to keep the conversation going mm-hmm. to be able to connect ideas. All right, so um, as Anjali said, we're going to be doing part two, which is titled An Alternative Perspective. And per usual, we'll be discussing our opinions of the text, but also using our reading techniques to take a deeper dive into the principles of the book. So, um, Katie, for our listeners out there who haven't read the book or need a refresher, could you give us a summary of Simon Sinek's objectives for the three chapters in part two? Yes, so I would argue that this part of the book is pretty much the meat of his argument. So his objective here is to lay out in the first chapter, which is titled The Golden Circle, is to lay out exactly what his true hypothesis is in terms of the importance of finding and understanding your why. He then goes in to back up that claim by saying it's not his opinion, but rather the way human beings are programmed, so it's biology. And then in the the last chapter of the section, he then goes on to break down the circle, the golden circle, with the three elements that he claims it composes, which is the why, the what, and the how, and how each of those play into each other um, and play off of each other, but that without kind of the core, the rest doesn't work. And then he just, he gives examples and talks about basically how one can't function without the other and how you need to have a very balanced golden circle. Mm, it's kind of the, the central theme really of this book, isn't it? The golden circle. Yeah, it is. Yeah. What did you think about the the part just out of interest part two? So, I mean, it's like one of those things that we have seen so many times Mm-hmm. in terms of like our work and just it's like been so pivotal to us as professionals so I've seen it before I knew it all that stuff obviously I agree with it I think that knowing your why is completely fundamental and I also really found the last bit like the last just opening my book here kind of the last like 10 pages which was all around authenticity to be really, really interesting and really good. Because mm. it, it just resonated with me with some personal, I can give some personal examples of how, uh, maybe a little later on, but I thought that it definitely, it definitely made sense. Like I can, I totally agreed with it. For once I can say that there, I didn't have 
much, if any, criticism of these three chapters. I will say once again, he uses Apple basically as like his, I don't know what the word would be, but it's his golden child. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is hard for me. And I know that this book is from, I don't know, 2009. So maybe we know more about kind of Steve Jobs at a, on a personal level. And I think it's hard for me just because we know more about Jobs. We also know how kind of crazy he was at some level. <laughs> yeah. So what did you think about? I mean, I have a lot of different comments. I wrote so many things in the margins on this just because like there were so many points that I thought were really kind of like, no kidding. Um, <laughs> I don't, I just, I'm trying to think. Like when he talks about your value should be actionable. And I've actually seen he still talks about this a lot. Like your value shouldn't be nouns. They should be actionable. I absolutely love that. I love mm -hmm. the idea. I mean, we both have worked for companies that had just like, honestly, everyone's probably has the same opinion of this. Just stupid values. Oh, where you're yeah. Like, Integrity, honesty, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. Humility, like really and, and like, what company is going to go out there and say, oh, yeah, we don't have integrity. Oh, yeah, we're dishonest. Like, right. It's ridiculous. We're going to purposely try and screw you over, but, yeah, you know. Oh, wait, we can't. It's one of our values. We're not going to. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And I like the fact that he makes them into something that's actionable in the sense that, like, you, if you want them to be part of you. And so I always think of our values, which isn't, we don't have values in the sense of a lot of companies where it's like, you know, honesty, integrity. We have mm. a value statement. Yeah. And it's definitely actionable. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really like that. Do you agree with my objectives, by the way? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I think you nailed the objectives. Um, so for me, this part of the book was really difficult. Um which I wasn't expecting because I knew ahead of time that this was like the the meat of, of the book. Um, and I, I mean, there are so many things I do agree with. This is the difficult thing. So the golden circle, um, this kind of diagram of the concentric circles, I thought that was funny because it's a little bit like our vision sphere um, yeah. in many ways uh, with the why in the middle and then the how and the what. I mean, our vision sphere is a little more developed than this, so like more layers to it um, and it's more complicated, but um, it's, it's very, very similar to our way of thinking. So it's... Um, so that that was that was good. I, that that sat really well with me. And there's so so many things that I definitely do agree with. Um, my real problem with this part of the book, um, and actually with Simon Sinek in general, is um, that there is this this chapter four is called "This is not opinion. This is biology," um, and he compares the golden circle to the, the brain, the structures of the brain, and he talks about the outside layer um, being the neocortex, and that corresponds with the what. And then the two inside layers are the limbic brain, and that corresponds to the why and the how. And what he says is that the neocortex is responsible for rational and analytical thought and language. The middle two sections comprise the limbic brain. The limbic brain is responsible for all our feelings, such as, such as trust and loyalty. It also is responsible for all human behaviour and all our decision-making, but it has no capacity for language. This is what I have a problem <laughs> with. <laughs> because I'm, you know, I'm a doctor. 
I have studied anatomy. I have dissected human brains. Um, I am not, uh, you know, a neurologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I haven't gone into this in great detail. But I know that what he says in this section is bullshit. It's absolute (laughs) pseudoscientific crap. Like, okay, so, I mean, there are so many ways that I want to tear this apart. First of all, the limbic brain is, is a system of structures. It's not two layers. I have no freaking idea what he's talking about why why it has two layers of it I really don't understand that also the fact that he makes a differentiation between the neocortex and the primitive brain um is again it's it's an inadequate um explanation of how we think as humans so for example he talks about how the limbic brain controls emotion however the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that we kind of in the medical sphere associate with your character, your personality. And that part of the brain is in the neocortex and it's responsible for things like emotional and social processing. So to say that the limbic brain is primarily responsible for all our emotional reactions is just, it's completely wrong. It's totally wrong. And he mentions it like over and over and over and every single time he mentions this is biology. This is the way our brain works. Like, no, it's fucking not. You're not a doctor. You're not a scientist. You have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. And this is what frustrates me. Like, I I like the points that he's trying to make in these chapters. I just hate the way that he makes them. Yeah, I think we ha- we can firmly agree. I mean, I can't rebut that because I am not a doctor. Um, but I think we can definitely agree that he tends to make very blanket statements. Mm-hmm. And um, usually they're based on his opinion, which is completely fine. You can make a blanket statement based on your opinion. But obviously when it comes to science, you can't. Yeah. So if he's wrong, I think it almost it almost would have come off better from what I'm hearing you say is if he were to say it's not opinion, it's biology in the sense of talking kind of at a, a higher higher level, not getting mm. so into the science and saying that like he, when he talks about gut reaction and that gut feeling, that yeah. that doesn't take science. Like we all know that we have that. We all know that we've made decisions knowing that our gut is telling us one thing, Definitely. but in fact we don't go with it. And then we're like, oh, we should have done that because we were right. Like there is some piece of, of, of humanistic instinct that is definitely more advanced. And we do connect more with that. And I do think he's right in the sense that when we have a why and we connect an emotional level, whatever, like when human beings connect on an emotional level, there's a stronger connection than when it's just on data. Mm -hmm. That is, I don't really think you need scientific data for that, but maybe he goes way too far Mm -hmm. in taking the scientific analogy to a point where he just, maybe he's trying so hard to convince us that he just blatantly makes really false statements. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I hate it when I, I think this is used so much in our modern culture. The way that um, that people, particularly political leaders, take science, they take the bits of science that apply to the way that they think and prove right. the way that they think, and ignore all of the rest of it, and then use that as some kind of evidence for their ideologies and their theories. Um, it drives me crazy. Uh, and Simon Sinek is is not a scientist. Obviously, as I said, he's not a doctor. He is an advertiser. He's a marketer. That is his background. Mm-hmm. And what really gets me is not that he's, I mean, there's there's no shame. There's no shame in being an advertiser or a marketer. Like that's his expertise. That's his specialty. 
he goes on about authenticity in the last part of this yeah. um this part of the book and and yet he's not owning the fact that you know his expertise comes from this background in in advertising i mean he he's using words like oh this is biology or oh, the neocortex or oh, the limbic mm-hmm. brain it all sounds very fancy but to someone who actually knows what they're talking about you know you're immediately it's, it's a high risk strategy because mm-hmm. someone's going to call you out um, and you're going to look like a fraud. And it's frustrating for me because I don't think Simon Sinek is a fraud. I think actually he has a lot of good stuff to say. And I agree with a lot of the stuff that he says. Um, but yeah, if you're going to talk about being authentic, then have the courage to own your own background, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and it's funny you say that because I heard an interview with him recently on Gary Vee's podcast. Mm-hmm. And and he... Gary Vee wanted to know where, like, where he came from, his background, and he very, he, like, brushes over it. He's like, I was in advertising, like, 10 years, you know, he'll say, like, a lifetime ago. Because <laughs> it clearly, he doesn't identify with it, which is totally fine. I mean, I don't want to always talk about everything I've always done. But there is something, there is something that is in your story, like, where you started and, and how you got from there to here. So it would be interesting. And I think he mentions it, like, once or twice. It's funny yeah. that you get so heated about it, because... Me not having a science background, I almost kind of skip over that part. Like, he didn't need to go that far in explaining to a scientific point, in explaining the importance of his theory to me. Um, Maybe because he doesn't want people to think it's his theory. I don't know. But (laughs) because it just resonates with me on like a personal level, on a professional level, that I don't need you to tell me that this is biology and therefore I should believe you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think that he could have stuck to the story of, it's just it, being a woman and being a mother, you know, like when you have an instinct that, you know, your kids are sick or your kids are going to be, if something's happening, you know, that instinct and you know that that exists for some reason. I mean, it's just nature. So at some level, he could have left it there and not taken it to this really yeah. far scientific place and I probably really made wish. good. Yeah. Yeah. I really, really wish that he had done that because this, it just spoiled it for me. Like I just, I didn't enjoy these chapters. Even the bits that I agree with, I found difficult because I was so irate. You know? <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, maybe you can help me try and move past this. <laughs> past the New York. I'm New really, York really struggling here. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I mean, I thought the example he gave of laundry detergent was so oh, yeah. perfect in the sense that, you know, every everyone was saying that they wanted brighter, you know, brighter whites and brighter colors of their clothes and blah, blah, blah. So the laundry companies, the laundry detergent brands kept advertising that and bettering their product to what the consumer was saying rather than, you know, and a psychologist or psychiatrist came along and watched the habits. And what's the first thing you do when you take clothes out of the washer, out of the dryer is you smell it. So you're Mm -hmm. connecting with it on a different level, you're not looking at it and saying, oh, this is good quality, but rather you're feeling it, you know, it's like a sentiment to you. So mm-hmm. then, okay, let's make it smell better. People want to consume it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, and there is, um, there are some really good points that I do agree with. So I'm going to try and move past my disappointment <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and talk about some of the good points of this chapter. Be fair, be fair. Um, so there's, there's one bit that I really like, which did re- resonate really a lot with me. Um, he, he said, um, basically, he's talking about the, the irrational and illogical decisions that we make, or seemingly illogical. 
Um, so things like leaving the safety of home to explore faraway places, crossing oceans to see what's on the other side, leaving a stable job to start a business out of your basement with no money in the bank. That really reminded me of us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Many of us look at these decisions and say, that's stupid. You're crazy. You could lose everything. What are you thinking? Mm-hmm. It is not logic or facts, but our hopes and dreams, our hearts and our guts that drive us to try new things. If we were all rational, there would be no small businesses, there would be no exploration, there would be very little innovation, and there would be no great leaders to inspire all those things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, this this definitely resonated with me because when I left medicine, um, it did on the surface seem like a completely stupid decision, like really irrational. Um, And at the time, I I couldn't articulate it. I think I can articulate it better now. But even now, I look back and it was definitely a a gut decision. It was definitely, um, I mean, I thought about all the variables so, so many times. And he he does mention that. He says, um, uh, what does he say? Hang on a second. He says, we make decisions all day long and many of them are emotionally driven. Rarely do we sift through all the available information to ensure we know every fact. Yeah. Yeah. And then he goes on to give the example. I like the example he gives here of like, of Colin Powell. He says, Mm -hmm. I can make a decision with 30% of the information. Mm -hmm. Anything more than 80% is too much. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting because when I was trying to make the decision whether to change careers, um, I did... I did take into account all the variables that I could, you know, I thought about it so, so, so much, the pros, the cons, should I, shouldn't I, yes, no, all of this stuff going round and round in my head for a long time. But when it came to actually making the decision, it was very much, you know, it was, it was almost as if I hadn't done all that research and done all that thinking. It was, it was on, it was something deeper inside that drove me to to do that. So that was very interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, that I've read that, you know, me, I always, have said this before that I'm a big believer in gut, especially mm-hmm. I just think that we try and push it away, especially with the big data age and all that stuff is that there's so much around and with SEO and Google and analytics, there's so much about like, you know, what are the numbers telling us? But at the end of the day, it's way more than numbers. We've used this example before on here before the WeWork example. And I'm currently listening to the Wondery We Crash, I think it's called mm. podcast, which is excellent. Anyone out there listening? But he makes a point to he's in the third episode. He's talking about how uh, what's the CEO's name? Adam Newman. Yeah, he calls mm-hmm. in his former head of community, the person who was like you know employee number three or four or something, um, and she's on the podcast talking. This is after they've been they've become like you know five billion dollar company or whatever, and he calls her in and says, "I need to bring you in because I need help figuring out." how to get people like a, a get a rob people up again and get out so get them around the brand and like create community and all this stuff and she walks out of that meeting saying if the CEO of this company cannot figure it out there's no way I can come in and do it yeah. so it's like and and you know I think up to then his whole thing was about data like I just want mm-hmm. to be a billion dollar company it's all about you know his rah rah speech was all about creating community and all that stuff when behind the scenes he was like I'm going to make this the biggest company it ever was. I'm going to create a movement. Mm. Look, you know, look at the way I'm going to take over real estate, whatever. But in the end, you got to run on gut. And if you don't have that kind of why at the center, the gut doesn't work either. 
But I, I do like the point that uh, Cynic makes about our reasons for buying um, certain products. Like he talks about Harley Davidson. Mm. Um, he says, you know, you used to um, wait six months for delivery. Um, and he says, like, that's bad service. And that's interesting because, you know, you, you would choose. You would choose to wait six months for this product rather than go with someone else who, who could get it to, to get it to you a lot sooner. Right. Um, and then he mentions Apple as well. He says Apple computers are at least 25% more expensive than a comparable PC. There is less software available for the operating system. They have fewer per- peripherals. Um, their machines themselves are sometimes slower than a comparable p- PC. Um, so so that that's interesting as well. I mean, part of the reason I don't use Apple is because I do find it more limited than Android. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, you know, people would people would opt for that for, for something bigger. Almost. Mm -hmm. I wonder how it works, really. I mean, if you think about the psychology behind it, because Mm -hmm. I'm an Apple user and I was an Apple user from the very start. I mean, I remember my grade school was all Apple computers. Well, I think they were in most schools because they capitalized the market. But once Mm -hmm. the iPhone came out, I have and still to this day, I bought and to this day still have the very first iPhone that was ever made. And I remember, yeah, paying 600 bucks for it, standing in line for it. It was all Oh, wow. Did you really? Oh, yeah. It was all about it, but it was more for me than it, that it was Apple. It was more that it was the first type of product of its kind on the market. And mm-hmm. so once I was in the ecosystem, I just stayed. And now for me to leave would be everything I own is Apple, you know, it all, and it yeah. all connects. We have Apple TV, we have iPads, we have um, Apple computer, Apple phone. So, and it all is so like, I just got a an iPad for Christmas and it gives you the option to hold your phone next to the iPad and it automatically syncs. So my iPad is identical to my phone within maybe 20 minutes it took. Oh I mean, my it's God. absolutely wow. ridiculous. <laughs> you don't have to set anything up. It's just an interconnected system. So that's why I'm in now. But if mm-hmm. I, and I started in it young and I was all about the new tech, but now that there's so many options on the market, I wonder how they're getting people in bringing people Mm. in now you know what I'm saying it's different it's interesting that you mentioned your childhood like is there an element of that's what you're used to um I mean he talks about how Apple customers all love a good revolution um because that's that's why they Mm -hmm. sync with Apple's kind of ideology but I would say I mean not all revolutionaries love Apple right I mean there are other reasons people buy things whether it be budget or availability in their area or convenience but or maybe it's it's more more visceral maybe it's things like what you're used to as a child the kind of the systems that are around you um it probably is more complex than he's trying to say (laughs) yeah it's definitely he makes them super digestible for anyone yeah yeah, which is completely his brand I'm sure he knows he does that and does it absolutely What's Mm -hmm. so funny, because when you work in what we work in and help people find their kind of core vision sphere, it is super complex getting there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure the journey for him to finding this, his why was not easy and not as as easy, at least as he makes it look now Mm -hmm. when he speaks and he communicates with people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, in his defense, I think it isn't what people want to hear. They want to hear that it's simple. They they don't want to talk about the complexities. Um, I heard Simon Sinek talking about the climate change kind of crisis and and the the issues that we have of, you know, people having very, very different opinions um, as to 
as to what climate change really means, if it's real, all this kind of stuff. Um, and he was talking about it being, it's, it's essentially a marketing issue. It's, it's a branding issue when you have climate scientists and researchers and scientists, uh, academics talking about climate change. They tend to talk as scientists do talk in terms of complexity, you know, um, that these these factors are complex, you know, there are many different variables, there are many different things that contribute to this. Um, it's not as simple as just black and white, there's this whole gray area. Um, and, you know, there, there are many, many aspects to the story. It's, it's very, very complicated. It's Whereas I think what people want to hear is they just want to hear a straight plot, beginning, middle, end, um, and so I think that's that's probably why it's easy for climate deniers and politicians to win people over is because they do just ignore all those complexities. They do just break it down into easy, bite-sized, digestible chunks. And people go for that because it's comfortable, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, that's what he should be looking at. That's a study in itself. What is wrong with our human brain that we prefer simple bite-sized chunks and don't want to have to go into the deep thought? I mean, if you think about that, if you take that as far as what we do when we go in and sit down in leaders with leaders, it is, it's a hard sell. I don't know if that's the word I want to use, but it's hard sometimes to get leaders to want to do that because they don't want to take that time to sit down mm. and do the deep thinking. Like what is it in us as humans that I like to do the deep thinking, you like to do the thing, deep thinking, but maybe as a majority, we prefer to be very peripheral. And why is that? No? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of my friends is uh, talking about how she sent out a questionnaire to um, some of her contacts about how she 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 wanted to know basically what what their purpose in life was, what their direction was, like all these really deep questions, and nobody did it. No one did the questionnaire um, because no one really wants to. It takes it takes it takes guts. It takes moxie to face up to mm-hmm. those things. It takes time. Um, and yeah, maybe that's why people just aren't interested in doing that. Right. But when you do it and you do the heavy work, really amazing things come out of it. I mean, if you move through this section of the book, there are other parts that really, for me, made me really think and say, oh, that's, I mean, the value piece that I mentioned at the beginning, I thought that was really good about, you know, not nouns, but actionable mm-hmm. uh, things that can be to make your how really stand out. Your how should be connected to your values. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really good. Mm. I think he goes, I mean, he gives an example of it. It's nearly impossible to hold people accountable to nouns. A little more innovation today, if you would, please, Bob. (laughs) And if you have to write honesty on your wall to remind you to do it, then you probably have bigger problems anyway. I love that bit. (laughs) I mean, I think that's so true. And then he says, you know, we can hold each other accountable to them measure them, or even build incentives around them. Telling people to have integrity doesn't guarantee their decisions will always keep customers or clients' best interest in mind. Telling them to always do the right thing does. I wonder what values Samson had written on the wall when they developed that rebate that wasn't applicable to people living in apartment buildings. Yeah, I mean, I think that connects really well with something he says a little bit later in the last part of the book, uh, part part of this part, um, which is, authenticity means everything you say and everything you do you actually believe right I think that's so critical because I think we see this so many times Katie and I had a client who who has a great and they had a great strap line um but their strap line didn't actually I mean basically they were trying to say that they were redefining their their industry um 
But then we asked them, okay, well, well, how, how are you doing that? How are you redefining your industry? And they had no idea. Um, and so what they were presenting to the outside world, what they were saying in the market, didn't actually translate to what they were doing on a day-to-day basis. And that's when things fall flat. That's when you come across as being an inauthentic brand. If your core message doesn't move like a thread through every single part of your business and it's not reaching every single person, every individual who works for you, um, then that core message is at some point it's going to fail, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think taglines, straps, all that stuff are great, but if you're not living them and if it's not a part of everything you do, it's it's useless. Mm -hmm. I mean, it makes no sense to even come up with one. Mm, Yeah. One of the things that stood out to me uh, from these chapters is just how repetitive this book is. Um, I mean, fair enough that you have to drive the point home, but my God, I mean, Simon Zinnick does not let you not absorb this message. I mean, it's just, it's the same stuff. I mean, I feel like a lot of management books are like this. Like Every management, I, I know, I'm not every management book, but every Simon Sinek speech and book is like this. Mm, yeah, it's, it's just, and it's not a knock to him. No, it's no, not at all. Not at all. It's the same. It's the same messages again and again, just told in different ways through different case studies, basically. Um, but actually, what it comes down to, like if, if you really looked at what it boiled down to, it would be just a handful of, of <laughs> points of key takeaways, right? <laughs> but it just, you could cliff notes it. <laughs> you easily. totally could so easily. Um, <laughs> but I think the reason that this stood out to me was because we have talked about this before. I mean, people who we've met, people who we would think of as visionary leaders, like Chris Hafner, um, are people who repeat the same things over and over and over um, to the point And where, they know it because yeah. I remember being with Chris at an event and he, before he went up, he's like, I'm sure you're going to be really sick of hearing this. <laughs> <laughs> he knows he says it over and over. Well, yeah. at least I'm learning. If I didn't get it the first 20 times, I got it now. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is a savvy thing to do in many ways because people do forget, you know, people don't take on your message the the first time necessarily. Um, So reinforcing, I think it goes with that consistency message that he he says at the end, reinforcing Mm. that again and again and again, if you keep repeating yourself um, and you really... You, you kind of you really do set yourself up for someone who stands for these messages um and yeah when it comes to people you know there are lots of people in the world so you're gonna have to say it over and over to if you want to get everyone to listen um yeah and even if you say it to one person once that doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna remember right right it makes me think of a my old business partner someone that I was working with for a while um Javi we, I remember he used to, and now that you were saying that, it reminded me of a time he used to do it too, when we would go in and meet a new company. And he, he was a kind of explaining our method, how we worked, what what the company could expect from the engagement. And I remember once we went in and this he, we, we were sitting with this guy, I think the guy must have said 10 words in the hour we were there. And Javi must have said the quote pitch, which really wasn't necessarily a pitch, 700 times to the point that I was kind of, but he just kept rephrasing it, coming at it in a different way. And since I knew what he was talking about, it Mm. felt like he was saying the same thing over and over again. And to the point that I was like getting anxious, feeling, thinking, I can't hear this man say this one more time. And when (laughs) when we left, I said to him, good Lord, were you ever going to stop 
you know, do you just say it until people finally say, fine, I'll buy your services? <laughs> and he said, no, well, he didn't, wasn't saying anything. So it was making me, it was telling me I needed to, to bring another angle, another angle, mm. another angle, another angle. Now, that is to say this person decided not to work with us. But it was a bit genius because he did it every time. And when you're in it, like we're in it, we see it. But when you're not in it, I guess you don't see it or maybe you do see it and you just don't say anything or Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But it did work because other times he would do the same thing and people on like the fifth take would say, oh, I get it. I get it. And you're thinking, Mm -hmm. good Lord, he said that five times before. Did you not understand (laughs) it five times before? So it is about repetition. Clearly not. It's about repetition and, and finding the one piece that all of a sudden kind of resonates with you that you could connect with. Yeah. And say, okay, now I get it. Yeah, maybe you know? it's just an appreciation that we are all different and that perhaps we need, each of us need different things to, to hook us into a concept to help us to understand something. Right, um, right, exactly. of the book club is a reading structure called the thought leadership analysis. There are several different definitions of thought leadership out there, but Angelia and I have our own way of looking at it. For us, thought leadership is something that causes us to do something, to stop doing something, or to change something. Angelia is going to read a passage that she's chosen from the text, and while she's reading, we're both going to think about ourselves as leaders and focus on how the text makes us feel and what ideas it brings to mind, and talk about whether it qualifies as a piece of thought leadership or as rubbish. (laughs) (laughs) A little harsh. (laughs) Okay, Katie, I want you to close your eyes and think about yourself as a leader. Okay. Are you ready? I am ready. So the piece that I've chosen today is quite a short one. Here it goes. Henry Ford summed it up best. If I had asked people what they wanted, he said, they would have said a faster horse. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, that's it. (laughs) Shall I read it again? Sure. Henry Ford summed it up best. If I had asked people what they wanted, he said, they would have said a faster horse. I'm sure you've heard this. Oh, a thousand times. And I think Steve Jobs used it like a thousand times too. (laughs) Um, I'm going to say it definitely makes me want to change something in the sense of it makes me, I mean, I love that quote, although it's been used, you know, it's kind of like a lot of different quotes. But what I like about it is that it's not the notion of, you need to be innovative. It's like stop thinking in one capacity, like one Mm -hmm. dimensionally and start thinking in so many other ways. I mean, I think it totally resonates with me in the sense of how we are approaching our business. Mm -hmm. So instead of just thinking, how do we get out there? So people hear our message, our message we feel is pretty unique in the sense. I mean, there are a lot of people that do what we do, but we feel we come at it and from a unique perspective, Yet we decided through a lot of ideation, we have to do more. It can't mm-hmm. just be about the message. It needs to be about the deliverance. What is the real issue in the industry? And we came to the conclusion of big pieces 
is this kind of the need to empower people mm-hmm. and how that really changes an implementation. And from there we said, how do we do that? Can we do it through an actual digital product? And so that to me is us saying, stop thinking of how we just do better comms. It's how do we really change the structure of our industry? Mm-hmm. And, I, and so in that sense, I think it is thought leadership because I think essentially what he's saying is innovation isn't about just bettering the product. It's about destroying and changing people's perception or the industry they're in. Or, you know, if I go back to King, I was reading a piece the other day and his letters from Birmingham are amazing. I mean, if you want to know how to write a freaking essay, read his <laughs> just he takes each argument and puts it, you know, puts it at the top at the intro and then just breaks it down in these beautifully piece, like done pieces and relates them back to the Bible and senses. I mean, they're just so unarguable. And so I think that's that's kind of the point. Like, don't just come at it from one direction, come at it from fifty because that's how you really change. Mm-hmm. Mm, that's interesting. So I would say yes. It makes me want to do. It makes me want to think differently. Mm-hmm. What about you? Did you think it was thought leadership material? Yes, I did. Um, what came to mind for me was that I, this harks back to something we were talking about earlier on. But people don't know necessarily what they want. Um, I mean, I, I say this a lot in my mentorship work um, that. Often people don't have the time or the space or aren't given the opportunity to to do that work on themselves um, where they really deeply think about what it is they want from life um, and how they want to live and the things that are important to them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you ask people what they want, the answer that you get is not necessarily either true or um, relevant, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I don't think that's an argument for saying we shouldn't ask people what they want. I think that is absolutely important. Um, but I think the really wise person doesn't ask, what do you want? But helps, tries to help you understand what it is that you want. You know, mm. tries to help you to get to that conclusion. Um, well, I think that goes back to two with the, you know, your mentors not having the space or the opportunity, it's for, it goes back to the other parts of work that we do. It's just, it's about giving yourself that time to really do the internal thinking. And, Mm -hmm. um, and then our goal and your goal as being, as mentoring them and our goal in, in our work is to not tell them what to do, but to help them on that journey, you know, to help them be that 360 vision to say, look at it from a, because I think that's just, that's so important. That's, I think that's why at some level we feel what we do is so different is that we don't want to be there forever. We want to empower Mm. you. You want to mentor people not to do what you want them to do, but to help them see what they really, you know, what they can do themselves to do. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think it, it speaks to this piece of, if you're constantly doing what what people want you to do, it's it's kind of a ple- people pleasing element there. It's the easier thing to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, someone someone said to me that they want this, and that's a justification for me doing this. Um, where it, again, it, it comes down to that courage piece to say that, mm-hmm. you know, I I think people will want this, but right now I have no one telling me that. Um, right. I think innovation in so many ways is about courage. 
It is about yeah. kind of mental and emotional strength um, and the determination to, to do something at the stage where everyone thinks you're crazy, right? Like at, mm-hmm. at the end, you know, everyone will say how, how amazing you are, what a genius you are, how brilliant you are. But at that beginning stage, people are going to say that you're crazy. And I think innovation ultimately is getting through that, that first stage. Right. Now it's that time in our book club meeting where we talk about how we practically apply the advice in this book to our business. So last time we set ourselves the goal of connecting with people, not to ask them for business, but simply to use them as a soundboard and ask them for mentorship. Um, So Katie, maybe we should talk a little bit about our progress in that area. Yeah, I think we've been actually extremely successful. Um, Everyone that we have reached out to in the last week or two has agreed to meet with us and our conversations Mm -hmm. have been super fruitful. Um, In fact, some are leading to maybe possible collaborations. And I think from a, a personal perspective, it's really given us great insight into how we're going to advance as well as the need for what we're doing in the industry, as well as the, the, the kind of visceral, on a visceral level, mm. what people want to connect. They want to be there for you. They want to hear your story. They want to give you advice. Um, I have found people to be just very grace, graceful and gracious about giving their time and mm-hmm. offering their time and sharing their time with us and giving us feedback that's been really, really helpful. I mean, mm. yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's helped us to shape our offering. Um, and that confirmation, just, just that confirmation about, um, about the fact that, that what we're doing is, is needed. It's necessary. is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, and if nothing else, it's just been a really good chance to practice our pitch, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was saying earlier today to Anjali that before, when we were having meetings with people, um, I would always, we'd always want to do them together. I would always want Angela to be on the call because it was easy for me to bounce. And mm-hmm. now it's, I'm totally fine taking it because one, we've really solidified our why and our offer has become so much more clear to us through these conversations and through the feedback that now it's kind of instinctual, like fine, I'll take the call. I'll do it. I know what, you know, what we're going to talk about. And so I think that that's been super amazing and super positive mm-hmm. yeah I think the one the one um, challenge that we've had is balancing um having those conversations with everything else that we need to do um you know obviously we're scheduling lots of calls but then there is a lot of other stuff that we need to get done um so it's just I guess it's just finding the balance between you know taking advantage of and having as many of those chats as we possibly can and actually doing the the kind of the practical um day-to-day work that that also needs to get done too yeah and then we also have so many takeaways that come out of those calls I think so then Mm. you know you think okay we'll have this call we'll get some feedback (laughs) and then we can keep working when in fact it's like okay we take this call now they're giving us advice now we need to discuss this now how does this impact us so they're really (laughs) instead of an hour call they turn into like three hours because you have the call plus the post debrief and so (laughs) and then by the end of the day our to-do list is like three pages long (laughs) so they have been awesome and we still have a couple coming in and what's been amazing for anyone else out there 
that is launching something. Uh, so maybe about a month ago, we start. I started doing some outreach through contacts, basically saying, you know, this is what we're doing. Maybe we could talk together, talk and on a call and talk about some synergies and really had not heard anything back. When we switched mm-hmm. it to, and the truth is, I mean, we would love business. Obviously, mm-hmm. that's we need to all make money and that's how we survive and we love what we do. So being in these engagements is really life for us. But at the end of the day, we will get business. What we need to do right now is build relationships because from relationships yeah. come even better business. So when we Absolutely. switched our eth- kind of our thinking and started reaching out based more on insights and feedback, everyone has answered. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure at some point, something from there will lead to something. But for the moment, this is where we are. And it's it feels good. It feels nice to be getting, yeah, sure, let's talk. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does feel good. Rather <laughs> we than like talking crickets. to people. <laughs> we like talking. We're making a podcast. Of course, we like talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, with that said, for our next podcast, we need to set a new goal. Angelie, what do you think we should set for ourselves for next time? So my suggestion for a goal this week um, is based on a paragraph um, in the chapter that I hate. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to ignore the bits that I hate and just go with this bit. So we are drawn to leaders and organizations that are good at communicating what they believe. Their ability to make us feel like we belong, to make us feel special, safe and not alone is part of what gives them the ability to inspire us. Now, you and I were talking about sending um, this, the first episode of this podcast out to uh, some of our, our friends and our colleagues and asking them what they make of it. Um, and so I'm really called to ask them whether they feel these things um, from our podcasts. Um, maybe not, so, not, not in so many words, but can we find out whether... We're making people feel as if they they belong to a community, that we're, that we're making people feel that we kind of understand, you know, who they are, that they can kind of be in our club, our book club, um, and that they're not alone in um, in sort of the way that they think about, um, yeah, about issues in business, you know, that, that we can kind of be their, their friends and their partners in, in looking in, at issues in a certain way. Yeah. I mean, I think that continues with our goal, with our past goal and kind of one of our core values is to be getting feedback and to be connecting with people. Mm -hmm. It would be nice to know that we are actually speaking to people and it's resonating. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's, um, let's send out the, the first episode to a few people. Um, and yeah, let's just, let's just ask them whether they would see themselves as being part of our book club, you know, whether they would want to join our book club. Um, and yeah, and see what happens. That sounds like a plan to me. Cool. We have come to the end of this book club meeting. Please join us next time. We will be discussing part three of the book, which is called Leaders Need a Following. You have been listening to Boss Versus Book with me, Anthony Pereira. And me, Katie Romero Finger. Find us on Twitter at Boss Versus Book or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. This podcast is brought to you by Sinsfera. It is produced and edited by Anthony Pereira and Katie Romero Finger, and our music is by Guyan. A huge thank you to friends of the podcast Stephanie Romero, Rob Parbron, Antonio Pinto, Hannah Kaji, Nigel Patel, Anthony Burr, Rebecca Johnson, Vanessa Quinlan, and of course, the crazy Chris Hafner. 
Have a great week and remember, no business story is linear, so join us in the glorious muddle.